Hi, we come to 1 Corinthians 5 this evening, and we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Um, it's a hard chapter, it's a hard chapter to read and if you like the first four chapters 1 Corinthians I've often felt have been very challenging they're always insightful, edifying but it seems the river is flowing quite smoothly we've enjoyed the scenery, it has been quite delightful and moving into chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5 there is a bend in the river and it's all turbulent white water from here and one of the reasons that we're committed to the systematic consecutive exposition of whole boxes of the bible is to prevent scaredy cat preachers from simply pulling the raft ashore ahead of the white water parts of the letter and working around them so we do need to go through 1 corinthians 5 in 1 corinthians 5 you notice that paul has moved on from division at corinth which has largely occupied his attention in the first four chapters, to address this case of, persistent case it seems, of scandalous sexual immorality that has become this open shame and scandal in the Corinthian churches. If you look at verse 9, you see that it is, this isn't the first time that Paul has written on this subject, because there is a reference to a previous letter. 1 Corinthians is the first of the letters that we have but clearly there was a prior letter that has been lost to us from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians where he has spoken to this issue of sexual immorality in the church. And it is clear that these earlier instructions have gone unheeded and reports of gross and aggravated sin still taking place among them have continued to reach the ears of the Apostle Paul. His earlier admonitions have failed to persuade or to bring about repentance 
So he is forced to write, not simply to explain why, why sexual immorality is incompatible with the life of a Christian, but to direct the, Christ, the Christians in Corinth to, in the difficult duty of church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 is very weighty and is hard. There is a gravity and solemnity about Paul's teaching that we shouldn't just gloss over. It should sober us and it should sanctify all of us. As we work through the material 1 Corinthians 5, I'd like us to look together at it under three headings. Number one, the danger that church discipline addresses. Secondly, the duty that church discipline imposes. And thirdly, the, the dynamic that church discipline demands. Church discipline is easy to say we believe in and very hard to practice. Studies among pastors and other church leaders have consistently shown that such leaders have a distaste for initiating any type of confrontation and conflict with congregants. Another barrier is that many followers of the Lord Jesus are uncertain about the differences between judgment and discernment. Not wanting to be judgmental, they therefore avoid all conversation about another person's behaviour except sometimes gossip. People these days cherish privacy and freedom to the extent that the very idea of being held accountable by others, even those with their best interests in mind, or who have a legal or spiritual authority to do so, is considered inappropriate, antiquated and rigid. And the fact is that most of us have never seen church discipline done at all, let alone well. Few of us understand its nature or its purpose, and even fewer of us are willing to seek out or submit to mutual accountability that the faithful exercise of church discipline requires. But whatever the difficulties and discomforts of church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5 calls us to church discipline nevertheless. So number one, the danger church discipline addresses. Verse 1, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The city of Corinth was well known for sexual perversity and vice. It is not altogether surprising then to discover that these relatively new believers at Corinth who have been grafted into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ were struggling to throw off the remnants of their old life. And the world within the midst of which they continued to live every day. There was sexual sin at Corinth. But of a nature in this case that was so aggravated that it was shocking even to the average sexually promiscuous and perverse Corinthian. The average pagan. They wouldn't even name such a thing, Paul says. And yet he says of the Corinthian believers, verse 2, you're arrogant. Or verse 6, they are boasting. We've seen in previous weeks how the Corinthians were proud of their spiritual standing. They boasted in their gifts and their leaders and their wisdom and their spiritual superiority. But now it turns out, as chapter 5 shows us, that the spiritual superiority of which they were boasting and proud is papering over the cracks. They're actually a sinkhole of unrepentant sexual sin. But this is important to see that it's not just sexual sin. There is a particular case that Paul is dealing with, 
But it isn't just the particular case that he has in mind. If you look at verse 11, yes, he mentions the sexually, the sexually immoral, but he also mentions the greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, all of whom would be subject to church discipline. You see the point he is making that unrepentant sin in general needs to be confronted. Christian accountability within the church needs to be practiced for all sorts of persistent, unrepenting, aggravated, scandalous sin. And in verse 6 he tells us why. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? One bad apple spoils the whole barrel, we may say. Sin spreads. Paul is borrowing a metaphor or building an illustration from the practice of the Passover, where the Jews were to eat only unleavened bread. And so after the Passover sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, they would sweep the house from top to bottom. You must have heard this. Every drawer, every cupboard was cleaned out, which is still a practice to this day among observant Jews. They remove all the dust from the house to make sure that there's no leaven, that there's no possibility of any leaven, any yeast, getting into the dough. All it takes is a little. It's unseen, unnoticed, but it has a massive effect. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin, when tolerated, excused, ignored, indulged, is like coronavirus. It spreads. The great danger that discipline addresses is the pervasive spread quiet and unnoticed like yeast silently permeating a batch of dough of unrepentant sin. When excuses for sin are made in one case then the pressure builds to make the same kind of excuses in another case and then another and then another and then you have practice and soon the church is hamstrung saying one thing from the pulpit that the bible teaches and refusing to expect the members to conform their lives to the standards that is being preached from the pulpit. And the tension that creates must give way. It is unstable. And time and time again, in churches where this takes place, then they stop preaching. The preaching begins to pull punches, dodges issues. It stops speaking to controversial issues. It stops speaking to public issues. It stops speaking to anything that would challenge the consciences and the lives of those who attend. And if that happens, a church like that will stop being a church also altogether. It will become a religious club, studiously avoiding anything that might possibly give any kind of offence. Paul is aware of how this can go. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And compromise here and there, if we're not careful, can have a pervasive effect. See, that is the danger that discipline addresses. It preserves the peace and the purity of the local church. But secondly, the duty. Suppose that we all, for a moment, we all acknowledge that church discipline is necessary, painful, hard. We should be slow to do it, yet necessary. What should it look like, the duty that discipline imposes? Well, take a look at verse 2 with me. 
instead of arrogant boasting, Paul says step one is grief. Ought you not rather to mourn, which is the right note. A church that practices church discipline according to Holy Scripture doesn't take joy in it, has no zeal for it, is not pleased with it, but is marked with grief. Grief that aggregated, scandalous, unrepentant sin could grow up among them in the first place. Grief for the one who, because of his refusal to repent, must become the subject of disciplinary action as well. Not anger. Certainly not schadenfreude. Not glee. Grief. Mourning. Tears. For one that we love who will not turn back even after much entreaty. But then Paul says, whatever the grief we may feel over it, nevertheless, verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Remember, Paul has already written to them, pleading with them clearly, offering counsel, admonishing them over this very issue. Or these, these very same issues. It's not only one. This is not a summary judgment, in other words. This is part of an ongoing process between Paul and the Corinthian believers and they have failed to implement biblical directives regarding the discipline of this unrepentant church member. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and, it, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What that's saying is that he should be excommunicated in the name and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be removed from the fellowship, to be declared and treated like an unbeliever. He is, in Paul's graphic language, to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So if you only think of the church as just a provider of religious goods and services, which is clearly what the government does right now. You know, hairdressers, gyms, churches. We're just one of, we're just bunched together as a provider of some kind of goods and services. Another civic club with normally some singing and praying thrown in for good measure, although we're not even allowed to do that. This language will be virtually incomprehensible to you. But if with the Westminster Confession of Faith, we believe that actually the visible church is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, outside of which, I quote, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. If we believe that the church is a supernatural institution inhabited by the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and endowed with real authority by Almighty God for his glory and for our eternal good, these words become incredibly weighty, even chilling indeed. Because they tell us that to be put out of the church is to be taken from the visible community of the redeemed, living together under the rule of Christ, and instead to be placed outside, placed into the world under the sphere of Satan's influence and power. And if you look down at verses 9 to 13, Paul explains what that means for the practice of the Corinthian churches. He says Christians are not even to associate or eat with those who have been subject to church discipline by the elders of the church. Now, in light of the earlier reference to the Passover in verses 6 through 8, 
to keep the feast, I think the Lord's Supper isn't far from Paul's thinking here. So when he says that we're not even to eat with such a one, I take that as a reference particularly to the Lord's Supper. Excommunicated church members are no longer welcome to the love feast of the Corinthian Christians, where communion was celebrated. And now, as he points out, he's not saying that he wants Christians to withdraw from everyone who is immoral in every way. To do that, he says in verse 10, would be to suggest that somehow you remove yourselves from the world. This isn't counselling that we should become monastic in some manner, but he is nevertheless calling us to godly loving church discipline. So I thought it might be helpful to paint a picture of how this might look in the Corinthian church. Just imagine a scenario with me after many tears and prayers and pleadings from friends and church leaders to come to his senses, a man has obstinately persisted in an illicit sexual relationship. And now with the command of the Apostle Paul ringing in their ears, the church gathers for worship as usual on the Lord's Day, and the man is excommunicated from their fellowship, formally removed from among them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now he finds himself outside, no longer welcome. And though he may come to the church, he isn't welcome to the Lord's table as once he was. In other words, he's no longer treated like a brother among brothers and sisters. Instead, he finds himself the object of a sort of evangelism. As those around him call him to repentance to come back to Christ. His small group where he seemed to grow so quickly in mutual accountability, was, was practised under the teaching of the Bible. Now his small group just prays for him, very faithfully, but they can't welcome him into that intimate discussions and circles as they would, you know, as they, as, as they used to. Instead he's treated like an unbeliever. So now when they see him, they don't run from him, but instead what they say is, old friend, will you not come back? We're praying for you that the Lord Jesus would bring you to your senses and restore you to fellowship. We love you. We want you back. Oh, will you not repent? Turn back. Now, to be sure, for a while, at least he felt free to indulge his sin with impunity, with no one pricking his conscience. But after a while, the joy of his sin begins to move away and the pleasure of it starts to feel empty and cold. And soon he catches himself reminiscing with fondness and no degree of regret about the Christian comfort that he knew among his brothers and sisters when at the church they spoke about the gospel and the glories of the grace of God renovating their hearts. And increasingly he finds himself aching for those moments that he can remember that are only memories now when he would lift his voice with a full heart together with his brothers and sisters to praise the name of the saviour he professed to love. And slowly, slowly, slowly the Lord works by the discipline that he has received. It becomes to him a means of grace and his seared slumbering conscience that refused before to repent wakes up and he's convicted of his sin. And he comes to see the exchange that he made eagerly swapping the joy of the company of the people of God for the fleeting fleeting pleasure of sexual sin. Now he seems that exchange 
to be a really bad deal after all. How deceived he now realises he has been. And one Sunday morning he cannot stay away any longer. And he's in a court, he, and he's found in a corner in the shadows, keeping the low profile, the def- profile, the defiance gone from his eyes and his heart. Instead, tears flow as the good news about the Lord Jesus and his blood that can make the foulest clean is proclaimed from the pulpit. That's why we preach the gospel every Sunday. And he's back the next week and the week after and the week after. And week by week, the Lord is at work in his heart and in his conscience until he confesses his sin to the pastor, pours out his remorse, makes plans to make amends. And he bears fruit in keeping with repentance and with joy one Sunday morning as the Lord's table is spread in the presence of the congregation. He is readmitted into communicant membership and the whole congregation rejoices and praises God together because a prodigal son who was lost has come home. And a sinner who has been living in rebellion and shame has repented and is bending the knee to King Jesus. The flesh is destroyed, as Paul puts it. The spirit has been saved. God, through the discipline imposed, has restored the rebel, sinful church member to good standing. And thirdly, the dynamic that discipline demands. We looked at the danger that discipline addresses and the duty that discipline imposes, although it's hard, sore, grievous, heartbreaking. As we plead and pray with God for the one under discipline, God can make it a means of grace for their restoration. And then thirdly, notice the dynamic that church discipline demands. Look at verse 6 to 8 again. Paul is developing this illustration, remember, about the way the Passover works, that leaven is to be swept, cleaned, purged from their home so the bread can be unleavened. And he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really are unleavened. The churches are like unleavened bread. This is what you really are. So be who you really are. Live out who you already are by the grace of God. Be who you are not just individually in your Christian life as you discipline yourself to walk in holiness, clinging to the Lord Jesus, but corporately together as you hold one another accountable to walk in holiness, clinging to Christ. Be who you are. Live in light of the cross. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Back end of verse 7. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The gospel of the crucified Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our true Passover, changes everything. Because Jesus has died and shed his blood for us, we are saved. And if we're to keep the lifelong festival of celebration for all that Jesus has done, then the leaven of sin is simply not welcome in our lives anymore. In light of the cross, in light of what Christ has done, what will we refuse to do to seek to make our lives conform to all that he asks of us? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Jesus has died and so he can claim everything, not just of each of us, but of all of us together. The cross changes everything, brothers and sisters. Live in light of the cross. 
live in light of the grace of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything for you. And you will see that sin cannot be played with or trifled with or indulged. But we're to live individually and corporately lives of holiness and purity. And we want nothing so much as to please him, to live for him together as a family of the people of God. And when one of us turns aside and wanders, refuses to repent, refuses to come home, we use all the means that God has given us to get through to them in an effort, a godly effort to win, win them back and to see them restored as prodigals. Though they have wandered to a far country, have come to themselves eventually and have come home. So Paul is asking us in light of the cross to really be who Christ died to make us, unleavened, that is holy. Not perfect, but striving by the grace of God to live for him as we celebrate the festival with gratitude. Jesus, our Passover lamb, lamb has been sacrificed. Nothing can be the same again. We do not get to live the way we once did when we make, make, made no claim to love and follow and trust in Christ. He has died. He's purchased us by his blood. Now we are his and we live together as a church under his rule. He has died and nothing can be the same again. So the danger that church discipline addresses, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. The duty that church discipline imposes to cleanse out the old leaven. Hard though it will be to do it, it is an act of love. And though you do it with tears, the faithful exercise of church discipline protects and preserves the purity of the church and by the grace of God may win back the wandering believer. And then the dynamic that church discipline demands. If we live in light of the cross, seeing how Christ has loved us, we will love what Christ loves and want to please Christ in the way that we live. So we will love holiness and we will love one another enough to practice faithful, tender, slow, patient accountability, calling each other to walk with us as we seek to walk in paths of Christian obedience. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us to live in the light of the cross. For the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, we are to be who he died to make us.